So please let yourself sit in a way which is comfortable and in which you can listen and in a sense be somewhat meditative as you reflect on whatever is said. One of the reflections that happens at either the beginning of the retreat or the end of the retreat or every day of the retreat (laughs) is what are we doing here? Remember that one? And as a way to pay respects to this work together like to speak about that question in a kind of traditional way. As we come together, we all experience what the Buddha saw and what motivated his practice. We look at the world and at ourselves And if we look with our eyes and our hearts together, this human world and human realm, among the many things that we see, the beauty of nature, the mystery of life, we also see how much sorrow is caused by us as human beings. The kinds of painful habits the personal ones of grasping and aggression and delusion of possessiveness and fear that are there in the human realm. I'm sure you've noticed some of those energies because they're part of everyone in this week. Depression, confusion, anger. And then we see magnified, as the Buddha did, the impact of those forces in the world around us. Racism, where a child born, beautiful child, with a particular skin color or language, all of a sudden is treated badly, is shamed, is hungry, is... um, suffers all kinds of terrible things. For what? Warfare, Bosnia, Somalia, Rwanda, Afghanistan, Oakland, Washington, D.C. No, those would be declared war zones in other countries, in a way. Ecological destruction, the arms race, the fact that we support ourselves as a nation now very sadly by exporting more weapons than any other nation on the face of the earth ever. It's how we pay for our imports. Hunger. There are grain elevators full of food some places and people this moment today whose main concern is to get enough food for one meal. All from greed and fear and grasping and not denial. All of these are rooted in a small identity, a limited or conditioned sense of ourself. My culture, my language, my age, my people, my territory. all those habits of who we tell ourselves we are, which is sometimes called the body of fear. Yet in us we know somewhere that this is not the only way. We can all sense the possibilities of greater compassion within our own hearts, of greater freedom, We all sense that possibility. And with attention to this, we discover what the Buddha did, that that contraction, that greed and fear and so forth, 
is not our true identity. It's not who you were before you were born. Now, in the Buddhist tradition, this understanding is sometimes taught in terms of what are called the paramitas, or the beautiful perfections of being, six perfections or the ten perfections. A long time ago, when you were very much younger than you are now, the Buddha was born, it said, in the Middle Kingdom. And it happened at that time that there existed on the earth another Buddha named Dipankara Buddha, who was wandering through the countryside teaching people the truths of compassion and openness, freedom. This young man, who was to become the Buddha, heard about this and went out in the woods and they were making this wonderful path for this great being to come to visit their community and their town. And people were laying down beautiful robes for him. And this young man got there just at the last moment and had nothing to lay down for the Buddha to walk over, just to pay his respects. He saw him and he had such sense of graciousness and presence and compassion that the young man put himself down instead of the robes and said, you can just walk across my own body in this path. And as the Buddha came by, the young man made the vow, whatever it takes to become like that, whatever it takes, I will do that. However long, that compassion, that openness. And as the Buddha passed over him, he nodded his head and acknowledged, yes, you too will manifest as a Buddha. So as the story goes, a hundred thousand Mahakalpas later, and four immensities, he became Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha. Now, a Mahakalpa, just to give you a sense of the time scale of this, in which the Buddha practiced the perfections of patience, compassion, generosity, and integrity, and so forth, over and over, hundred thousand of these, one Mahakalpa is described as a mountain seven yojanas high, which is the length an ox cart goes in a day, as high as Mount Everest, seven miles. Seven miles long and seven miles wide, an enormous mountain. And every hundred years, a bird comes along with a silk scarf in its beak and drags the scarf across the edge of the mountain, wearing it down a little. And when that mountain is completely worn down, that's one Mahakalpa. <laughs> so there are all these wonderful children's tales about what the Buddha did in those hundred thousand Mahakalpas. And he got himself in trouble in various ways and practiced the perfections as he could. The most remarkable ones are when he was a young man out in the woods and saw at the bottom of a cliff a hungry tiger, tigress, mother, with her two cubs mewling and needing milk, and she was so weak she was sick, she couldn't catch food, and they had no way to nurse. And he became so compassionate, he threw himself off the cliff to be food for the mother tiger so she could feed her cubs. Those kind of stories were... <laughs> or this, and that was one practice lifetime, right? Or this great king, a hawk flew, a, a dove flew into the throne room and said, you know, is this a peaceable kingdom? And he said, yes. And then a few moments later, a great hawk flew in and said, peaceable or not, the only way I live is to eat raw dove. And the, he said, I, you know, I don't eat grain, I'm a hawk, right? It's not my thing. And it doesn't, it doesn't digest well. The king said, you can have all these kinds of food. The hawk said, it doesn't work for me. I have to have something that's alive. Put the king in some dilemma because he was a peaceable kingdom. What to do? Finally, he had the scales brought in. He said, fine, 
put the dove in one scale and he cut out a piece of his own flesh to offer to the hawk to eat in an equivalent amount. Those kind of stories. Now, if you listen to those stories and you take them as a model of how you are to be from the small sense of self, it becomes impossible. (laughs) How could anybody do that? But instead, their purpose isn't to compare yourself, but rather they're to make us aware of a vision of what's possible within ourselves, actually, of who we really are. It's like the 36 hidden saints, the sadiks, that somewhere in the world they keep the world alive. These stories keep the world alive. The only way we could throw ourselves off the cliff to that mother tiger is when we realize that we are the tiger, too. We can't give ourselves to her, but if we are who she is, then it's natural. The, the only way that we could be that great king or queen is when we discover that we are justice in our true nature, when we find who we are. So when you come to ordain in the Buddhist tradition, you are met, or in many texts, you are met with the phrase, O nobly born, whoever you are, O noble one, welcome. So in a way, this is what we do with our sitting here, with this ancient art of practice. A reclaiming or a remembering of our true nature, our true identity. We can start kind of confused. And as we look and sit, we talked about the unfinished business and emotions, the tension of the body, the things that we've forgotten come back to us first in layers. In the mid-1800s, the American painter James McNeil Whistler spent a brief and unsuccessful stint as a cadet at Tibet at the West Point Military Academy. And in the engineering class at one point, he was asked to draw a stone bridge. And so he drew a romantic one with grassy banks and two children fishing off the bridge. (laughs) And the colonel, the engineering instructor, said, get those children off that bridge. So he got the kids off the bridge. He drew them in the next one, the stone bridge. He drew them fishing from the banks. (laughs) Colonel got yet angrier. I told you to remove those children, get them completely out of the picture. But that creative sense in Whistler was very strong. So the last version had the children completely out of the picture. They were buried under two small tombstones on the (laughs) riverbank. But it's like that a ways. We've lost something long ago, and we know what it is. Kabir says, I laugh when I hear the fish in the sea is thirsty. You don't grasp the fact that what is most alive of all is inside your own house. So you walk from one holy city or temple to another with a confused look. Kabir will tell you the truth, go wherever you like, to Calcutta or Jerusalem. If you can't find it here and now, you will never awake. So for a time, the practice is honoring, acknowledging, removing, or letting go of all the things that keep us from being here, the the fears, the emotional history, the healing that we talked about. It's a little bit like undressing inwardly and opening, bowing to what comes piece by piece until we can hold it in a great spaciousness until we discover that the heart has space for everything. All those pieces forgotten and loved and unloved that we've talked about. Victor Hugo wrote, 
I met a man on the street, a very poor man who was in love. His hat was old, his coat was out at the elbows, the water passed through his shoes and the stars through his soul. And there's a way in which, through all the difficulties of the practice, it's really learning to be in love again with life, which is to connect with life. Kabir again writes, in this clay vessel, all seven oceans are inside and hundreds of millions of stars. The music from the strings that no one touches, the jewels of the world, all within us. So we sit, and there'll be moments, and you've all had those moments, sometimes many of them, where you kind of wake up and it's as if you have been asleep or daydreaming or watching TV for a long time. And then, oh, that, that's what I came for. That moment of seeing the trees, the sunset, that moment of just being here, that sense of space which holds your tears and your love and your story and your not story and all that, something much greater. And it's a kind of coming home, a remembering, like the Hindu song that the mother sings with the baby in the womb, the baby sings, do not let me forget who I am. And then the second verse comes only when the baby's born. Oh dear, I've forgotten already. So the ten perfections are reminders of that truth, of who we are, that shines in ourselves, that beauty. And I'll talk about some of them so you get a sense of how you are remembering them through the practice. The perfection of integrity. My teacher, Ajahn Chah, used to love to talk about integrity and virtue. It's one of his favorite things. There was a time when a person's word was gold. And that's still the gold that you carry through all the circumstances of your life. The integrity that you have with what you say and do, connecting to your deepest knowing and your deepest heart will take you through anything. I'll read you a story. Abbot Anastasius had a book written on very fine parchment worth 18 gold coins that had the full Bible in it. And once a certain brother came to visit him and seeing the book, made off with it. So that day when the abbot went to read from his Bible, he found it was gone and realized this young brother had taken it. But he didn't send after to inquire after the brother for fear that this young brother might add perjury and lying to his theft. Well, the brother went down to Alexandria in order to sell the book. And the price he asked was 16 gold coins. And the buyer said, give me the book that I might find out whether it is worth that much. And with that, the buyer took the book to the holy abbot and said, Father, look at this book and tell me whether you think I ought to buy it for 16 gold pence. Is it worth that much? And he looked and said, yes, it is a fine book. It is worth at least that much. So the buyer went back to the brother and said, here is your money. I showed the book to Abbot Anastasius, and he said it is a fine book worth at least 16 pence. And the brother asked, astonished, was that all he said? Did he make no other remark? No, said the buyer, he didn't say another word. Well, said the young brother, I changed my mind, I don't want to sell this book. And he hastened back to the abbot, and begged him with tears to take back the book. But the abbot wouldn't accept it, saying, Go in peace, my brother, I make you a present of it. And the brother said, If you do not take it back, I shall truly never have any peace. And after that he dwelt with abbot Anastasius 
for the rest of his life. It's a beautiful story. And when I first read it, when I read it now still, there's something in it that makes me happy. It makes me happy because it touches that place of knowing that we all have of how beautiful it is to live with that kind of integrity and that kind of caring for another being. So this is the perfection of integrity. It's recognizing that beauty in ourselves and sensing how we too can live from that knowing. Then there's the perfection of generosity. Oh, which really speaks about the love of caring for others, of giving. Tentative giving, when you first practice it. Should I? Maybe I should put it in the attic. I might use it again. No, I'm not going to use it here. You know, tentative giving. And then brotherly or sisterly giving, when there's a sense of really sharing with others what you have and how much more the heart opens. And then the perfection as it grows, what's called royal giving. Because the pleasure of giving is greater than the pleasure of possessing. May you have the best of what I have. May you enjoy that. Not because you want to, you know, do something, but for the sheer pleasure of it. The sense of generosity that grows, and it comes really from an inner abundance. The poet Rumi writes, Lord, the air smells good today, straight from the mysteries. Haven't you noticed? The inner courts of the divine, a grace like new clothes thrown across the garden, free medicine for everyone. Go outside. Face to face with a lion, I grow leonine. Walking out of the treasury building, I feel generous. Anyone still sober in this weather must be really afraid. (laughs) Walking out of the treasury building, I feel generous. And that's really where it comes from in the Onondaga nations, in the tradition of the Indians there. One of the ceremonies that they do for young children is when they're two or three years old, make a circle of the tribe and place the child in the center of the circle. And first, they give the child wonderful drinks, all these wonderful things to drink. And after the child feels satiated, then someone from outside the circle cries, I am thirsty. I'm thirsty. And the child hears the cry, and everyone does, and they lead the child to take of their drinks and go, and offer that to that thirsty person. And then they give the child all these wonderful things to eat in this great banquet. And then someone cries, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And the same thing, the child is led out now to share that with the other. And beautiful robes and warm furs. Oh, I'm cold. And the child is led out to offer some of those. What a way to teach children, huh? You know, children love to do it anyway. Children are naturally generous, and so are you. When you remember, when you remember the joy of that. The perfection of patience. And as you listen, you can hear how each of these grows moment by moment, day by day, in the practice of our attention and our presence Awareness itself is a generosity. It's a kind of respect. There's a kind of integrity to it. And so we're remembering our Buddha nature. Patience. Now, patience isn't about waiting, you know, well, waiting for the sitting to be over, waiting for (laughs) that most wonderful sound. (laughs) There's a very interesting thing you'll notice about that. Right? Haven't you noticed 
that you can be sitting there and you're all restless and tight and you can't wait till the bell to ring and then you hear and as soon as you hear it all of a sudden ah you feel fine right <laughs> you haven't moved your posture you haven't done anything yet but you feel terrific all of a sudden everything feels fine why is that hmm? have you noticed what's the difference all that waiting and then gong and then everything's fine hmm? so patience isn't about waiting it's one Zen master called it a sense of constancy or presence or another way of understanding it is that all things are already here that we seek what we most deeply long for could never be anywhere else but where we are. It's also in patience an acceptance of the nature of the seasons. We breathe in and we breathe out. Our heart opens and closes. You think the idea is for your heart always to be open like some kind of sunflower? Smile and happy and have a nice day? They wouldn't stand you after a while. For <laughs> but you wouldn't like it either. Your heart breathes, your body breathes, your mind breathes. How far you go in life, says George Washington Carver, depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and the strong because someday in life you will have been all of these. And so patience really has more to do with the sense of the natural seasons, the ripening, the breathing in and out that is life itself. Einstein said, when you sit on the sofa with a pretty girl for two hours, it feels like one minute. And when you sit on a hot stove for one minute, it feels like two hours. That's relativity. <laughs> it's like the bell. It's all how we create it. We can create how it should be and get all tangled up, or we can remember to sit in our Buddha nature. And then things are as they are. It's like Zorba the Greek, who talked about taking this cocoon and opening it and trying to get the butterfly to come out faster than it should. And you know what happens at the end of that story. The butterfly dies. Because he didn't remember the true cycles of life, the seasons. Another of these perfections, of these beauties of our human nature, is determination. The kind of commitment that we have to be present for life. In the forest tradition where I practiced, you know, in those places, there was malaria and tigers and kind of um, great renunciation and terrible food and, and, and so forth. It was kind of an initiation right to go there. But we have it here as well in our own way. We all have our things to face. The storms and sorrows and difficulties and all of that that comes. Napoleon wrote in my whole life, do you know what was the most astonishing thing that I learned? The most amazing thing I discovered was that the sword is always beaten by the spirit. It's always true. And so this quality of determination is really remembering that power of our own spirit. So Horton kept sitting there day after day, and soon it was autumn, the leaves blew away, and then came the winter, 
the snow and the sleet and icicles hung from his trunk and his feet. But Horton kept sitting and said with his sneeze, I'll stay on this egg and I won't let it freeze. I meant what I said and I said what I meant. An elephant's faithful 100%. Could have just read that book to you tonight and that would have been the Dharma talk, right? <laughs> It's like Rosa Parks just sitting down on the bus and not getting up. She said, I couldn't get up. I just knew I could not get up. And that's what the Buddha did, and that's where wisdom grows, that seat that one takes to say yes to life, whatever it is, the joys and the sorrows, and discover this greatness of heart. Truthfulness is another of these perfections. In the story, it said that the Buddha made a lot of mistakes, like the rest of us. But the one thing that he didn't do was lie about it. The one thing he didn't do was to not acknowledge what he had done. Tremendous power to truth. A person can no more diminish the glory of the divine by refusing to acknowledge it than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling darkness on the walls of their cell. The truth in the end is all that there is. And part of our practice in the very simplest way is moment by moment to be with what is so. My problem with movies where people get killed is that my concentration is broken with the first death. I lack the mental dexterity required to simultaneously mourn and continue to follow a plot line, and so I simply lose the plot. Doesn't matter if it's the star or an extra shot in the crowd scene, I can never distinguish in my heart the difference. So I've fallen behind trying to figure out what's going on in the Gulf War. This was in the New York newspaper at that time. Oh, I listen to the news, read the papers, sit in the theater, know my eyes are on the screen, but I'm not really following the movie anymore because the bit players are starting to get knocked off. When it gets down to one life, the mind achieves a vivid understanding If I take the deaths one at a time, I notice that Marine Lance Corporal Michael Linderman of Douglas, Oregon, was only 19. And I know what it was like to be 19. And I notice that there wasn't a standard military portrait of Marine Private Dion Stephenson of Bountiful, Utah. his prom picture and you can see the hook on the strap of his bow tie. After you look at these pictures, the war becomes difficult to follow because to be decent, you have to stop and love them and mourn their passing. And they're getting to be so many of them, it's impossible not to fall behind. Once you start to think about the dead as individuals, It isn't long before you start to think about the living that way as well. That's a kind of truth, isn't it? It's the truth that really sees things as they are and doesn't whitewash it, that really is willing to bear witness to what's beautiful and what's painful in this life. And we have that capacity.
Martin Luther King as the you know, worst of the Birmingham riots and the bombing of his church. We will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We'll not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws. But we will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win your freedom in the process. That's a place of truth. So what is it like to live in this way? From that knowing that we all share to sit and sense this life and to open to it. As we do moment to moment, there grows the perfection of stillness and wisdom. The stillness isn't the absence of things because there's sounds and sneezing and coughing and, you know, pings of the radiator and dogs barking and the food and so forth. Life doesn't stop in the monastery, does it? Not to speak of your mind. But there's a stillness that grows in our presence, a deepening ability to rest in the present, to be with what is. And then out of that stillness grows wisdom, prajna, panya. The wisdom sometimes described by the Buddha as seeing the three truths of the world, the three qualities of all things, which are like gates to our, to our living in truth. There's the gate of impermanence. This is Don Juan to Castaneda. Death is our eternal companion. It is always to our left at an arm's length. It has always been watching you and it always will until the day it taps you. The thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you or if you catch a glimpse of it or if you just catch the feeling that your companion is there watching you. It's true, isn't it? For everyone. One Zen master, Suzuki Roshi, put it this way. He said, I will sum up all the teachings of Buddhism in three simple words. Not always so. Whatever it is, not always so. That things are in their nature a river. Our life is a process, birth and death of this body, birth and death over and over of thoughts and feelings. How many lives have you lived in these days? And the more deeply still we get, the more that life becomes this river where you can't tell, you know, what you were then is not who you are now. The wisdom of insecurity is what Alan Watts called it. Of living in the fact that we don't know. He said you're like people winding your watch on the way to the gallows. Right? You don't know. So out of the sense of the true dance of life, one also sees how unstable it is and that nothing can be grasped. What your heart longs for, your happiness, cannot come from grasping. Only suffering and sorrow and war and all of those difficulties come when we try to hold on. Does holding on make you happy? I ask you, look at it. Try holding on to your children. Do they like it? Do you like it? 
try holding on to others. It doesn't mean you don't love them and care for them or your own body and, and, and honor it in every way you can. But the second truth is that if we hold on, we suffer. If we don't live with the breath of life and the seasons of life as it is, if we're not open in that way, if we don't remember the truth, and that truth means that there is suffering anyway. There's pain, not suffering, perhaps, to clarify the language. Pain is inevitable, someone said, and suffering is optional. There's pleasure and pain and light and dark and praise and blame. Anybody not have that? Raise your hand, right? (laughs) To see that as it is and to rest in some deeper knowing. And finally, to understand that we can trust the selflessness, the emptiness of things, that the breath breathes itself, that the whole sense of identity, the separation that we take, isn't, isn't true, is a story that we tell. It's the most freeing, wonderful thing to discover in a moment, taking a sip of water, walking, sitting and feeling your breath, that moment where all the sense of who I am and what I'm going to become and all those thoughts drop away and things are just as they are, dancing as they do. And for that moment, there isn't any trying to be something. And then you're just the river. Go, oh, it's wonderful. So this is the returning of stillness and of wisdom. And out of it grows the perfection of compassion, or with it. I was traveling, teaching earlier, I guess it was last year, and I went to Hawaii to the big island, visit some friends and teach, and on the black volcanic rocky coast south of Kona is an old and huge black stone wall compound, part of a Hawaiian temple, Pua Honua Ohonanao. Few of you might have been there. It's got different names, the Temple of Refuge. And in the Hawaiian culture and society, in these great lava rock walls and pools and in the temple, you could feel it. It's a powerful place. At this temple, it was said, that no matter what you'd done in that society, if you had killed a person or broken some great taboo of some kind or other, if you could get yourself into the walls of that temple, the priests would meet you there and put you through a rite of purification and you would be forgiven and sent back out. And I went in this place and I thought, does this place still work? You know? I mean, because imagine it. And then I began to think about, suppose in our society, instead of the fact that we now spend more money on prisons than we do on schools in our culture, and what does that say about our society? Suppose instead of that we had temples of forgiveness. What would that be like for us? Someone went to one of the Hasidic masters and said to him, Rabbi, when we're there praying, what should I do? There's this young man who's joined our community who's always falling asleep. You know, should I nudge him to wake up or pinch him a little bit to wake him for his prayers? 
And the rabbi said, if he were falling asleep, I would put his head in my lap so that he could rest during our prayers beautifully. The perfection of compassion. When emptiness becomes clear to you, which is to say you remember who you really are, you're not going anywhere. What are you going to get that you can keep? Who are you trying to be? Nothing. Then what's left is compassion. What else to do but to love the world? And the tears come because you see people doing things. They don't even have to do it. Why not be happy? I'll tell you a story, yet one more. I was riding on the train from Washington, D.C. to Philadelphia last fall to go to my father's funeral. He died last year. I was to be the rabbi at the funeral performance, which I did. You know, meditation teacher, rabbi, it's all the same. And so I got on the train and I looked around for somebody interesting to sit next to. And, you know, just to see, kind of looking around. And I saw this interesting African-American guy. I said, oh, great. Sat down next to him. Struck up a conversation. We kind of talking about what we do. And turned out, after he heard about the Buddhist thing I do, right? Sometimes people ask me what I do and I'll say, I'm in sales, right? (laughs) Sometimes it's in theater, but we won't. But anyway. But I talked to him about Buddhist practice and so forth. And he said he understood very well he'd been in India. And he had been in the foreign service. And he said, I was a foreign service officer for a while, but then in India... He said, one day, they called me in the carpet and yelled at me in the embassy because I was paying my servants too much. I had these Indian servants, and they had huge families, and they were so poor, and I was giving them extra money. And they said, you're going to ruin it for all of us at the embassy if you pay your servants that much. And he said, I looked at it, and I knew it's not where I belonged. So I came back home, and I done different work, he said, and... Now the work I do is with young men in the district, and I work in the juvenile justice system, which is a very intense place to work in D.C. And he said, mostly I work with young men who have committed homicide. And I just sort of stopped at that, just thinking, imagining that. And he said, but you never know what you'll find here. He said, sometimes it seems hopeless. And then he said, you find amazing things. For example, there was one young man, 14, 15 years old, walking down the street, whatever happened, and he shot another young black boy. Oh, it was terrible, he said. And I went and got involved in the whole court trial. And at the end of the trial where he was convicted, he didn't even know the guy he shot. The mother got up at the end of the trial when he was convicted and said, I'm going to kill you, and sat back down. So he was sent to prison, juvenile detention. And after many months being there, mother of this boy who was killed went to visit him. Gave him a little money. Asked him if he needed anything. First, it was a bit awkward. Gave him some money for cigarettes, whatever. And then she started coming back, giving him a little money, trying to help him. He was there for a few years. She'd come more often, and gradually it was time for him to go out. She said, where are you going to go? He didn't know. What are you going to do? 
you know, he had, a, as you can imagine, a horrible, abusive background. To do that, you only kill people if you've been killed in your soul somehow. He was just doing what had been done to him. So she said, I'll tell you what, I, I think I know where he could work. She kind of arranged a job for him. But he didn't have any place to stay. So she said, well, I got a spare room. Yeah, you all come and live in that room. So he did. He lived with her for a while and got this work, and he was on probation and gone through that. They were together for some time like that. One day he came home from work. She called him in the living room. She said, I'd sit down, I want to talk to you. He sat down, she looked at him and he said, remember when I told you I was going to kill you? He said, I sure do. She said, well, I did. She said, I did not want there to still be on the earth such a young man as could kill my son. And so I've come to take care of you and give you money and feed you and bring you into my home because I did not want that young man to be alive anymore. And you are not that young man anymore. Then she ended up adopting him as her son. So that is the perfection of compassion. And when one does the practice of compassion, there are different ways to do it as we've done here. One of the ways is to breathe in the sorrows of the world into your heart, to take them in, to let your tears flow like the Buddhas. And to breathe out kindness. Somebody said, take in the sorrows of the world. I mean, I'm having enough trouble dealing with my own. But here's the question. If you could take on the sorrows of the world, if you really could do it, of all those beings who suffer, if you could do it, who among us wouldn't do it? Wouldn't you do it if you really could? And you can. The last of the perfections are a kind of energy that comes just from presence. And joy, the joy that comes for no reason at all, because life is just mysterious and amazing in its own way. Know that joy is rarer, more difficult, and more beautiful than sadness. Once you make this all-important discovery, you must embrace the beauty of life and joy as a moral obligation. This is André Gide. It's not just to become depressed. I mean, one of the most beautiful things about the Dalai Lama is how happy he is. And he can also weep. And he really, I've been with him when he's wept. And he says, oh yes, we weep. We must weep sometimes very deeply. But it's all he said, if you can't be happy, what use is your practice in the midst of all of this life? This is from Maurice Sendak, you know, the children's book author, Where the Wild Things Are and so forth. He says, someday, some days he'll receive mail from the children who read his books. One day I got a charming card with a little drawing on it. I try to answer all my children's letters, sometimes very hastily, but this one I lingered over. I sent him back a postcard and I drew a picture of a wild thing on it. And I wrote, Dear Jim, I love the card you sent me. Then a bit later I got a letter back from his mother. And she said, Jim loved your card so much, he ate it. (laughs) That, to me, was one of the highest compliments I've ever received. He didn't care that it was an original Maurice Sendak drawing worth so many thousand dollars or anything. He saw it, he loved it, he ate it. (laughs) 
So that kind of leads to the last part of this talk. Have to be very careful here, because often when there's the teachings of the paramita of, or the word of perfection, the confusion comes that you're supposed to perfect yourself. That if you jog enough and treat your lover and your spouse well and you floss and all of those things, you know, and try to be helpful and make a perfect personality for yourself, then everything will be perfect. But perfect personality, as I said, is an oxymoron, right? It's like rap music or something. Oh. There's a story of Mullah Nasruddin. A friend of his was going to get married and came to see the Mullah in a tea shop in somewhere in the Middle East and said, Mullah, you know, I'm looking for advice about marriage. Have you ever considered marriage? And Nasruddin said, yeah, I, I thought of it. I even tried to find a wife, but it just never worked out. And the friend said, really? Tell me. And he said, well, the problem is I was looking for the perfect wife. And first I went to Damascus, and I found this woman, and she was beautiful and sensuous and kind, but we didn't communicate very well. And then I went to Beirut, you know, and I found this woman, and she was beautiful and kind and We communicated pretty well, but she didn't have a spiritual nature. And then I went to Jerusalem. Oh, I found her, you know, perfect in every way. We communicated well. She had a deep spiritual nature. She was equally at home in the world. And so the friend said, well, then why didn't you marry her? And he said, well, unfortunately, she was looking for the perfect husband. It's like looking for the perfect moment, isn't it? The perfect person, the perfect partner, the perfect job, the perfect something. That's nuts. I mean, it is. There's no such thing in terms of our ideas. It can't be. So the idea of these perfections isn't somehow to make yourself different and better. It's like, you know, when you sit, there was a a great Zen master, and his student was sitting there and sitting there and sitting there, and the Zen master said, what are you trying to do by all this sitting? And he said, I'm going to make myself a Buddha. And the Zen master picked up a brick, and he took his robe and he started to rub it like this, rub and rub and Finally, the student looked up, what are you doing, master? And he said, I'm going to make this into a mirror if I rub it enough. And the student said, but that's impossible. And the master said, the same thing for you, you're going to make yourself into a Buddha. That's not possible. We don't sit to make ourselves into a Buddha but we sit to remember who we really are, what our true nature is. You've been a Buddha for a long time. A long, long time. And it's not that you have to become something. It's really more a letting go of becoming anything and resting in that beauty that comes from that letting go. We sit to remember, to trust, to reconnect, to feel that place of the heart of compassion and wisdom in all things. To sense the goodness that's within us and light and peace and tears and compassion and deep letting go. You know, in all the struggles, how else would you learn compassion if you didn't struggle? All those things.
When I first went to my teacher Ajahn Chah's monastery, one of the things that we had to do in that monastery was to learn to bow, which one does in Asia. You know, and I was very awkward at bowing. I would get down my hands and knees and my rear end would stick way up in the air. I was not a very graceful bower, right? But I kind of learned how to bow when I went into the meditation hall or bow when I met the master. You'd bow three times and so forth. And I was doing that okay. And then one day, one of the monks came to me and said, you know, strictly speaking at this monastery, um, you should really be bowing to all your elders. You know, and I wanted to be a good monk and try and do this right, so I said, so who are my elders? And they said, well, in this order, an elder in the order of monks and nuns, an elder is anyone who was ordained before you have, which means, in my case, everybody, right? So that meant whenever I met somebody, I'd get down on my hands and knees in the dirt and bow. You know, and sometimes it was lovely because it'd be this beautiful old nun or monk or somebody who's really wise and you'd say, this is okay, you know, bow to them. But sometimes it was like some young punk who'd ordained, I mean, I was only 21 or something like that, who was around the same age, 19, 20 years old or something, and happened to ordain the week before me, came to the monastery because his parents wanted him to. It was kind of like bar mitzvah or something like that, right? Or because the food was better there in the dry season or something, and I'm getting down and bowing like this is something like And it didn't sit well with me somehow. So I could feel that dissonance as I was trying to bow. But I still was doing it, because that's what you're supposed to do, and I would be bowing, paying attention. And then gradually it felt very painful to bow and not really want to do it. So I made an exercise for myself. I began to look at each person to see if there was something that I could bow to. And maybe there was an older monk who maybe hadn't even ordained for very long, kind of did it as his retirement thing. And I would look and I would bow to the wrinkles around his eyes and all that he had seen. Or maybe it was a young monk, you know, and I'd look at him and I'd bow to his youth and all the possibilities or his energy, anything that was possible for him. And pretty soon I would find something in each person that was beautiful to bow to. And I'd bow before I went into the dining hall to eat and bow before I left and bow as I entered my cottage and bow when I left. And after a while, if it moved, I would bow to it. (laughs) And it was a wonderful way of being because it was really a way of paying respect to all things of coming from that place of one's own Buddha nature. Set your heart on gold. Don't settle for anything less. It doesn't matter if it's hard here or easy. That's really kind of irrelevant. The Buddha said the purpose of practice is not merit or good deeds or concentration or insight or the absence of those things, but the sure heart's release, the freedom that's there within you in any moment and the great compassion that comes from that. And then when you find it, like the end of the Zen ox herding pictures, this whole story of the ox, the last pictures of this Zen master having gone into the woods and found the tracks of the ox and tamed it and danced and played his flute and disappeared in the moonlight and all those things. And finally he comes back and it's called returning to the marketplace with bliss bestowing hands. When you rest in who you are, in a moment here, any moment, with compassion 
and presence, and that emptiness that knows that you possess nothing, that you are nothing. When you rest in that place, then whatever you do, whatever you touch, you touch with beauty, with grace, as a gift. This is a poem I'll close with from a woman, an acquaintance, who is a beautiful poet. She also um, has something called brittle bone disease. Her bones are very brittle, which means when she was a child, she mostly gets about in a wheelchair now. As she tried to learn to walk over the years, she would, and fell, she broke her bones a dozen, fifteen times in the course of learning to walk. So this is her poem. Take the time to pray. It is the sweet oil that eases the hinge into the garden. Prayer and meditation, it's the same. Take the time to meditate or pray. It is the sweet oil that eases the hinge into the garden so the doorway can swing open easily. You can always go there. That's what we do here. We open the door to that garden. Consider yourself blessed. The stones that break your bones will build the altar of your love. Your home is the garden. Carry its odor hidden in you into the city. Suddenly, your enemies will buy seed packets and fall to their knees to plant flowers in the dirt by the road. They'll call you friend and honor your passing among them. When asked, who was that? They will say, oh, that one has been beloved by us since before time began. And this from people who would have trampled over you to maintain their advantage. Give everything away except your garden, your worry, your fear, your small-mindedness. Your garden can never be taken from you. So let's sit for a minute. Sit in your garden. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.